Hello and welcome to another episode of Belltail Rugby. I am your host, Neve Campbell, and I'm joined as always by our sports reporter, Adam McKendry, and rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley. This week, we're off to a flying start, as Ireland have been in their Six Nations campaign. They had a record win in France, of course, and then on Sunday there, they held Italy to nil. The Italy coach actually compared them to the All Blacks at one stage when they get their noses in front, and they did well with lots of new faces, Johnny Given the retirement of Sexton, as well as Keith Earls was missing and Mac Hansen has an injury, a few new faces were going to be required regardless, as you've been writing in your column this week. Yeah, so I think they were always going to have to freshen things up a little bit. The main one being, naturally, the replacement for Johnny Sexton, which has turned out to be Jack Curley. But I think the emergence of... Joe McCarthy has really added to the sense of freshness of things. We've seen Calvin Nash play the two games so far, scoring two tries. And then I didn't really expect, just the way the fixtures fell, I didn't really expect there to be as much rotation for the Italy game as there was. Obviously, there were a few knocks and niggles played into that. Um, so we really saw Farrell use a good chunk of the a good chunk of the squad with those six changes. And naturally, st- still got the job done with uh, an awful lot of room to spare. So I don't think the head coach could have asked for any more than what he's got over these past uh, two weeks. Most especially, I think, in terms of Crowley, because like, you know, we're two weeks, two and a half weeks on from me writing a column saying, I don't think people are appreciating how big a loss Johnny Sexton's going to be. I haven't mentioned him. Like, regardless of what you're saying about how bad the other five teams are, like, there's not been any hand-wringing or concern about how much Ireland missed Johnny Sexton. Um, You're seeing things like, you know, Ian Henderson being outside of a 23, James Ryan being on the bench, and this just seeming a natural order of events because of how well McCarthy's looks like he's coped. And just the complete lack of... A World Cup hangover. I'm sure people are sick of hearing the phrase World Cup hangover, but like the Six Nations in a post World Cup year is always strange. It's always, it always has a sort of almost deflated tone to it in comparison to the other years. But Ireland are the team that don't look like there's been any lingering impacts to the World Cup quarter final, will always be a regret. It's a blip. Um, you know, it's a blip in the sense that they've won. 19 of the other 20 games they've played during this run beyond that one that one game against the All Blacks. But they look like the team that is carrying on in the progression through the World Cup, if that makes sense, rather than a team that was getting to the World Cup and then starting anew. So it's just been, I don't want to say perfect, because obviously the, within the performances there have been, there have been elements for improvement but, and Naturally, a bit of concern about the injury to Hugo Keenan as well. But like, if you were to say two weeks ago that Ireland would be in this position and really that their rivals would be in the positions that they are, I don't think you would have even believed that things could have gone so well. If we are about to discover that Hugo Keenan is more important to Ireland than Johnny Sexton is, then I don't think that would have been on anyone's bingo card about a month ago. Well, there's certainly a less apparent backup because we don't really know who's <laughs> going to play 15, whereas... Although we've spent the last, well, it feels like spent the last 10 years talking about Johnny Sexton's backup. I suppose we did, Crowley was anointed, as it were, 
um, once we got to the World Cup. You know, even it's e- easy to forget that even um, you know this time last year, Jack Carley wasn't in the twenty-three. It was Ross Byrne. Now I know Ross Byrne's obviously been uh, injured for this Six Nations, but there was so much. Whenever it became clear that Sexton wasn't going to play on, there was so much. Um, debate over who was going to be the next number 10 it now feels very natural that it is Crowley and you know we've talked about Carberry we've talked about both Byrne brothers Frawley if you want to go further back Cardi JJ Hanrahan Keatley Paddy Jackson like there's been loads and loads of people that we've always had in this discussion about depth at 10 but the overarching theme of those discussions has always been how much Ireland will miss Johnny Sexton. But that doesn't seem to have war on Crowley's shoulders at all. Like, he looks so confident. There's been mistakes. Um, obviously, there's been mistakes. There's always going to be mistakes. But he hasn't let those define his game. He hasn't let those change his game. And some of his touches in attack against Italy were brilliant, really. Like, especially early on in his involvement for his own try. He actually went to fullback talking about the you know the, mm. the Keenan replacement. He finished the game at fullback. But um Jeepers, we can't have him playing every position. I mean we're <laughs> Well that's you know that's the thing. I don't I don't think there's any possibility that we'll see him play there um from the start against Wales even if Hugo Keenan's injured. But just the way that he has taken to uh filling this role, I think has to be the main story of the past two weeks. I think there's been a bit of good fortune to pick up on what you were saying there about all those heir apparents that have been coming through over the last few years and ultimately it is Crowley who's got the the nod. There is a degree of he's got his timing right just purely through he's the one who happens to be pushing through whenever Sexton actually retired. There's been talk of would he retire after the last World Cup, would he retire sometime between the, the last World Cup and this World Cup, as, as in the World Cup just gone. Um, so, you know, you've had all those guys like Carberry, like uh, the Burns, Frawley, Cardi, all those guys coming through and people thinking, oh, well, they're, they're there apparent. But you just knew that they were never going to be the ones who eventually assume the shirt because at, at, at the right time, because Sexton wasn't retiring Crowley just happens to have come in at the right time he's had that little bit of learning from Sexton within squads and I think large in part due to his age there's a degree of looking at him as well this is our fly half long term you know look I'm I'm not saying the Burns or Frawley are old veterans or anything like that but they are older Crowley's got you know potentially 12 13 years at the top level if he plays on as long as Sexton. Well, if, if, he, if he plays on as long as Sexton. But, you know, you're looking at someone who you could potentially build your team around again, which is what Ireland do tend to do with their fly halves. You know, David Humphreys held on to that 10 jersey for a while. Then it was O'Gara for a while. Sexton's obviously had it for what feels like centuries. But, you know, now, now you've got Crowley and the hope is that you've got that 10 in place and then everyone else is sort of battling out beneath him so uh, I've been really impressed with him I think just how calmly he's slotted in like at no point have you ever felt he's even looked flustered by what's been put in front of him and that's a measure of the man that he's able to step into what is a high pressure position you know even after these two games people are still looking at it and we're debating it right now like is he the long-term successor to Sexton it's not just 
is he good enough to be Ireland's tenets? Is he good enough to be Sexton's successor? And that's a whole other level of pressure to put on what is a young man's shoulders. And he has taken it all on board and looks like he is ready to be Ireland's 10 long term. Now, what I would like to see from him is how he does respond to some adversity. You know, so far he's come in and he's had what was an unexpected armchair ride against France. And maybe maybe that's maybe that's not giving him enough credit, but I mean certainly he wasn't harried against France as much as anybody thought he would be. And then Italy it literally was an armchair ride. He, you know, Italy didn't offer all that much resistance, but it'll be interesting to see whenever he gets his first knockback because there will be a knockback at some point. He's not going to go through his international career where everything is sunshine and rainbows. But whenever he gets his knockback, how does he respond to that? And I think that's when we start to get a true measure of where Jack Crowley is and certainly if he does continue like this then I think it's going to take a lot to shift him from that 10 jersey but uh, we're still very early days. What I think is interesting and for anyone listening I swear we actually didn't compare notes before we started recording this uh, like Johnny you had mentioned the, that there's been no apparent World Cup hangover um, and I'm not such like a buzz, a buzz phrase because I had that written down as well um, but what's interesting about this team and that given how well they're doing just like personally, I was um, my trainer in the gym. She loves rugby, and she had been talking to me yesterday about about the game at the weekend. And and you know, she was saying, "I was like, oh, they did, like, really thumped Italy, like beat them thirty six 0 And she's like, "Yeah, but they still made mistakes." So even there, you're talking like both of you are talking about um, there are still mistakes, and obviously there will be. But do you think that that's a standard that Ireland have gotten to now that they're nearly the makers? of their own downfall is that even when they do perform so brilliantly, the fans and people are still looking for the improvements. And you'd said that word, you'd said that they basically are sort of perfect, but I had written that down too. Do you know, do you think that people are looking for those improvements because they know that they could actually reach perfection? Yeah, I think those are the standards that they set for themselves. You know, afterwards, um, in his media, Farrell called it clunky. And you think back to the France game, like, after that, everyone was like, oh, this is amazing, record win in France, performance was so good. Like, one of the first things Peter O'Mahony said afterwards was, you know, we left a few out there. And I think part of it is the standards of a team that have now won 19 of their last 20 games. And part of it is just the context of the opposition. <laughs> like, we'll probably come on to talk about it a bit more later, but, like, the opposition that they're playing are just not at the same level that they are, and that's going to go, I think for the entirety of this championship because while we're looking at everything through an Ireland prism if you take a step back like the story of the Six Nations is how bad five, five of the uh, six teams have looked well because that is something I was going to touch on as well because Johnny has been writing in his column this week about that that the other four games haven't really been great they haven't been up to great quality you know Adam would you agree do you, but do you think this is the first Six Nations that that has really been an issue I think a lot of the games are being saved by the fact that they're close. You know, Scotland-Wales for 40 minutes of that game and even a little bit into the second half until you realised Wales were actually making a comeback was saved by the fact that it ended up being a grandstand finish. Uh, Scotland-France was saved by the fact that we had that ridiculous finish where it was decided by the TMO. But the quality of the rugby has been poor. Like you see, the, the biggest talking point that has come from this Six Nations so far is the Dupont lock. 
and that you know the fact that we're talking about uh, a rules exploit that encourages more kicking shows you the exact quality of the Six Nations so far. Ireland have been good. France have been so poor compared to what we know they can produce. It's to to go back to that World Cup hangover. Like if there was ever a a literal example of a World Cup hangover, it's France who are looking like a shadow of the team. It looks like they've almost regressed to the team before uh, before they sort of started building up to the World Cup. And maybe we just need to hold every World Cup in France in order to get France back to the level that we know they can play at. Um, but, you know, England haven't been good. And I think we kind of expected England to be in this weird transition phase. But even then, there's just a real lack of, I want to say, pizzazz about England. Um, and Wales are just a limited team, unfortunately. But uh, look, like give give Wales a bit of credit in that they're starting to unearth a few good players. You know, like Cameron Winnett has looked really good at fullback. Tommy Rafael is possibly going to be player of the tournament for a team that might not win a game. Um, but he's been absolutely outstanding in his first two games. But that that is the problem with the Six Nations after a World Cup, which is that some teams do sort of look at this as the chance to take a step back and retool, but the quality does decrease. And it's the first Six Nations in a while that I can remember just being very underwhelmed by all the games. Like it's the first Six Nations in a while where I've been fortunate enough to watch every game so far, um, just through, through a combination of my work schedule working out uh, that I've been able to sit down and watch every game. But I cannot remember a Six Nations where I've just been left feeling so deflated by just the general quality on the show. As I said, the finishes then get you quite into it and they sort of suck you in but you know getting to that point has just been such a slog and especially off the back of full contact and the fact that you know this this great Netflix documentary comes out and it's giving an insight into the Six Nations and fans are starting to watch it and going yeah I'm going to go back to a Six Nations game or I'm going to watch it again and then they're being treated to this like rugby at the end of the day is still a sport that needs to attract more casual fans it's not yet in a position of football where people just go to a football match because they want something to do people won't go to a rugby match unless they really want to go to a rugby match you need to attract more casual fans and having these dar games and i know teams aren't going out to play dar rugby but well maybe england accepted but you know you need to have an entertaining product on the pitch and if you know a rugby nut like myself is looking at that game and thinking I might switch off here before we even reach half time you you need to find something else to try and you know bump it up and try and get more people to to be sticking with it. Do you th- even talking about full contact there because we didn't have enough time to talk about it last week um because I think it came out shortly before we actually recorded last week but we the lads and I had actually been talking about it last week and even there you're saying Adam you know full contact is people go and watch that and think oh well this is great behind the scenes I'll go watch a Six Nations game like Johnny you'd even been saying yourself and sort of everyone in the office have been saying that even that though wasn't a great example of it it didn't really do it didn't get behind the scenes the way people I think thought or hoped it would No I think the access wasn't what it needed to be I think you can really obviously tell watching it 
which teams bought into giving access. That was really Italy and Scotland and which teams didn't, which is disappointingly Ireland um, and England as well, I suppose. Um, but yeah, like, you know, we're talking about bringing new fans to the game. So say that, say there was somebody who out of curiosity who didn't have an interest in rugby, watched Full Contact and then went to watch the games at the weekend. It's not even the fact that the quality was poor. It was like, there were a couple of things that you would just find very hard to understand, like how the Scotland-France game finished and how important it was that the referee's on-field decision was no try rather than try and how that's essentially what the game hinged on or the George Ford charge down in the England game of whether he did or didn't start his run-up and Adam mentioned the uh, what's being called the DuPont loophole. And it's just an awful lot of things where if you, <laughs> just because we are thinking about new fans coming to the game, there's an awful lot of things that if you didn't have a background knowledge of rugby and you were watching those games at the weekend, that would just confuse you and they would confuse you because they don't make a lot of sense. Like that's, I don't think that's a bad way to look at things sometimes because it gets you out of the habit of thinking that something's right because it's how it's been done for a while or how it's always been done. And there were just some things over the weekend, knowing that there's always more fans, there's more, always more eyeballs on the Six Nations um, than there is at any other time. And just thinking about how confused, on the one hand, those new fans would have been, and two, as Adam sort of alluded to, how easy it would have been for them to get bored during some of those games. I agree 100% that I think it has been helped massively by the fact that the finishes have been dramatic. Like, the... France-Scotland game, a perfect example because people were sort of talking about the last couple of minutes rather than a game that to me was really, really low on quality for what is supposed to be two attacking sides, but also just lacking in ambition for what's meant to be two attacking sides. You, you, know, what, you know what I would love to see? I'd love to see on the broadcasts, whether this is BBC, ITV, TNT, Sky Sports, whoever, like, not just sometimes what what they do is they put up you know this is what the penalty was for, but especially during the Six Nations where you are getting a lot of casual eyes on it, put up an explanation of the penalty, so you know not rolling away and then the little box underneath, the player has not gotten out of the way of the ball to allow quick play. Or something like that. It doesn't have to be, you know, you put up the law in its entirety and it fills up the entire screen. You know, just a little box down in the corner that explains it. And that gives people a little bit of understanding. TMO check. TMO is checking if the ball was grounded or something. Rather than, now, in that case, you, you can't hear what the TMO is saying. But just just something like that for the casual fans who are watching the game and are like, I don't have a clue what's going on here. There's there's your very quick explanation. It only has to be on the screen for 10 seconds to explain exactly what's just happened. Offside, the player has gone too far beyond the ruck and is offside. So is it just, like just to play devil's advocate, it is quite a difficult balance as well because we see that sometimes during World Cup games where, you know, if you go on social media, then people who do watch a lot of rugby are complaining that the commentary isn't aimed at them, you know. I understand, well, like, you're talking about graphics rather than commentary, but, like, it, I think it can be a fine balance to strike of um, appealing 
or providing analysis for the people that want analysis from their commentary, but also providing a gateway to those who maybe only watch four or five games a year, you know? See, I, I obviously love the analysis part of commentary. I just think that there is a balance to strike here. You know, that there, there, there has to be a way, especially whenever it's the Six Nations is on terrestrial TV, there is a way to strike a balance. And like whether that is the Six Nations themselves, like sitting down and talking to the broadcast companies, like I'm, I'm not attributing any blame here or anything. Cause I, I don't know where it is, you know, whether the Six Nations are saying we don't want you to do this or the broadcast companies are saying we don't want to do this or whoever. But, you know, whenever you're watching that game and people are, you know, going on social media and going, I have no idea what's going on here. Like, there are ways and means to get this across, either through commentary, through graphics, through explanation after the game or something like that. There are ways and means. And whenever you're talking about a sport that is still trying to get more casual fans through the gate, find a way. There there has to be a way that this can happen. Do you know, this is slightly off topic, but one way to get uh, casual fans through the gate was see if they get just more kids. Like Stevie, what was his name? Stevie, Stevie Mulroney. Stevie Mulroney. The late, late show kid on singing. Um, well, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what, this, and this is exactly the kind of impact it can have. We had my extended family around on Sunday afternoon watching the game and all anybody could talk about was the wee kids singing the national anthem before the game. And that kind of thing, yeah, it does generate clicks and it is really cool to see him doing that. Um, and if that gets more eyeballs on the game, then I'm all for it. But uh, you, you still want people talking about the rugby as well. And I feel like the rugby has kind of taken second place to that and you kind of yeah. want it to be on a par. It was definitely second place in terms of the way that the game was covered because the stories about the anthem were definitely like higher up in uh, terms of what people were reading <laughs> yeah. in the game. But uh, that's, I suppose that's... John, that's Johnny sits down kids. and writes his great <laughs> column every single week and some kid sings a national anthem that's, and he's blown that's, out of the wall. That's absolutely not what I was getting <laughs> at. The guy's definitely more talented than I am. Yours is really wholesome. Adam, I just had a mate text me and go, it's good that they let Craig Casey sing the song. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, going back to Ulster, so Ulsterman Stuart McCluskey, he, he really shone and... Um, Gary Ringrose and Buddy Aki have been sidelined through injury. So Andy Farrell looked to him and to Robbie Henshaw to, to play a key role. And this time the duo did click. And um, I was reading an interesting, it must have been in the press or afterwards, uh, an interesting sort of interview that McCluskey did. And he talked about the fact that he, like he hopes he does get on, but and he calls him Faz, you know, he calls Andy Farrell Faz. Um, he, he doesn't entirely blame him for that. And he was sort of even like, sort of lamenting his youth a bit. He was like, you know, whenever I was 20, I wish I was 23 again. And, and could be playing more now, but um, he did. He did really well at the weekend there, Johnny. And I suppose is there anything to take? I know it was, it was Italy. I don't mean that to be um, derogatory or anything, but is there anything to take from that? Yeah, I thought he played well. Uh, I thought he really grew into the game. I thought you know he's he's always going to offer himself to carry. He's always going to offer himself defensively. I thought maybe people who aren't as familiar with his game probably would have got a, an insight into his uh, passing ability because he was particularly good in that area and, you know, had the two try assists as well. 
But it was a good partnership between him and Henshaw. Henshaw's been really good these past two games, having been probably along with Henderson and James Ryan, probably the highest profile players that no longer look like they're in the starting 15, certainly um, on the basis of what we've seen in the past two weeks. And that partnership, I think, is important because we saw this with McCluskey you know, in the Italy game last year where that partnership with himself and Bondiaki, him at 12 and Bondiaki at 13, didn't necessarily click in what was certainly a more disjointed performance against Italy. But him and Henshaw, and that would have been the first time they played together since the Samoa game before the World Cup, when, again, it wasn't necessarily the most fluid of Ireland performances. And... One drawback or negative, I suppose, of the Andy Farrell era has really been how the side has looked when there's been that many changes. And they have had a tendency to lose rhythm. But I think how well McCluskey and Henshaw dovetailed together really ensured that that wasn't an issue this time. And yeah, he, he spoke he spoke well afterwards. He's interesting. Like He, he always speaks pretty well, to be honest. Now. And um, it is interesting because he, obviously the narrative was that, you know, Joe Schmidt didn't really like him. Um, McCluskey sort of admitted in that interview that that was probably one side of it, but it wasn't as simple as just, uh, you know, Joe Schmidt didn't like the way that he played. And he's got six, 16 caps now. Um, and it's certainly more than it looked like he was going to get at some point. But then you do also, as he maybe alluded to there as well, you do sort of wonder how many caps he would have got in a different era of Irish rugby where centre stre- center depth wasn't as strong. You know, you think about how many caps Bundyaki has got and you're talking about somebody's nominated for World Player of the Year last year. Um, so it's obvious to anyone the competition that he's up against. And, you know, he's realistically, he's probably the fourth choice centre, but you can make the argument that during the period that we're talking about, he's also been Ulster's most important player. So it's not even so much a knock about him or what he's doing provincially, just about the uh, the incredible talent that Ireland have in that position at the minute. We're going to actually take a break from the Six Nations this weekend as well because Ulster travelled to Swansea to face Ospreys. Uh, the province looked to push on in round 10 of the URC. Uh, it'll be the first time that they're playing since their big win against Leinster at the RDS on New Year's Day. Do we have any um, team news, lads, or any sort of predictions yourselves about how you think it's going to go? I would say you're probably going to get a few guys released from Ireland duty. Like I, w- I would say Jacob Stockdale will probably play, given that he hasn't featured in the first two Six Nations games. Nick Temeny as well, I would say, is probably going to be asked to go and get some game time. Tom Stewart too. So uh, Ulster will have that bit of a boost uh we haven't had an injury update or uh know anything sort of from within the Ulster camp yet we're recording this on uh early Tuesday afternoon the press conference is uh this evening so by the time (laughs) so by by the time this goes out there may be some team news uh go on Belfast Telegraph that could you care to read that (laughs) um we said this last week like I wouldn't say anything that Ireland are doing would have any kind of an impact on Ulster. You might get a tiny bit of a boost from 
Stockdale, Stuart Timoney, you know, the guys who do come back just purely from a perspective of they they've been in a camp that has won two games, so they might have that little bit of a lift. But would I necessarily say that there's going to be any sort of massive difference? No, I, I think Ulster are definitely going to go out there with a bit of a chip on their shoulder, given that the last game they played, they were dumped out of the Champions Cup in rather humiliating fashion. So they do have something of a point to prove. And as we've talked about on podcasts before, we're coming into a very important part of the season for Ulster where, you know, three wins out of four could set them up perfectly for the final few months of the season or one win from four or dare we say it four losses in a row would leave them scrambling not just to make the playoffs but to make it back into the champions cup next season so really pivotal point of the season for ulster and you just wonder what they've sort of been saying over the past few weeks to try and put that champions cup disappointment behind them because it's not even like they can afford to let that dwell Otherwise, they are going to put themselves into a really tough position in the URC. They have to get back at it and they have to get back to winning. And not only that, but they have to get back to winning multiple games in a row. Like one win this week against the Ospreys isn't going to move the needle much. They have to then back that up. All right, they've got Dragons at home, which should be an easy enough game. But you've really got to start putting together a few wins in a row and that's going to be a challenge. So this this first game is, I think, probably one of the most pivotal games of Ulster's season. Not in terms of opposition, but just in terms of you have to get the result here or you're staring into a really tough stretch coming up. Well, you say that about not in terms of opposition. Like, Ospreys have won five of the last six. They're eighth in the league, but if they win, then depending on how the bonus points shake out, they could go ahead of Ulster. Like, Ospreys have become one of... Now, I know, obviously, that some of those games have been in the Challenge Cup. But Some how, of those games have also been against Cardiff and the Scarlets. Yeah, yeah, but they're winning games. And, you know, the fixture list is uneven, so we can't even really say that, you know, oh, they're beating other Welsh teams because they get to play other Welsh teams, whereas... You know, Ulster don't. So I think it's a big one just in terms of not in terms of making a statement or in terms of starting off the run well. I think it's a big game in terms of the table. Like I can see a future this season where Ulster are in and around where the Ospreys are, you know? I understand like what you're saying is the season could sort of go one of two ways, depending on how this block goes. You could either be looking for top four or you'd be looking to secure top eight. If you think that Ulster are going to be in a position where the primary goal, as in the first thing that they have to take off, is to make sure they're in the top eight. Like, I think Ospreys are one of those teams that are also going to be in and around the top eight, trying to make sure that, you know, they're in the in the Champions Cup and not the Challenge Cup next season. Ulster should not be in this position. Like, that's, that's sort of the first thing that we should say. Like, Ulster should not be scrapping it out for top eight. And the fact that they are, I think, is an indictment on where this season has gone. But is it is it though? Because you know, Ulster at the halfway stage of the season are fifth. I think we both predicted them to finish fifth. You maybe had them fourth. Yeah, but we didn't expect them to be like in a position where, like, I would have predicted Ulster to be fifth, fourth or fifth in a table where 
you know, there, there's kind of a bit of a gap between maybe like the top mm. six and everyone else. I wonder is if, that more just the fact that the other teams have been better though? You know, like Benison have been better than we thought they were going to be. Ospreys have been better than I thought they were going to be. The Lions have been better than I thought they were going to be. You know, we're talking like Munster are 11th in the table. They're the champions, you know. Um, I think the middle of the table, if you like, is a lot tighter than I thought it was going to be. But I think Ulster are about where I thought they were going to be. Like, I didn't expect them to get beat by Edinburgh at home, but I didn't expect them to beat Leinster. And to me, those results are the two outliers. I think, in t- sorry, in terms of the league, and this is the real contrast, because like Neve, you were saying, you know, their last league game was the win against Leinster. And that feels so long ago now. Purely, well, one, in terms of the break for the Six Nations, but two, in the sense that it felt like such a positive step forward, whereas since then we've had Europe. So, yes, Europe has been something of a disaster, and it'll be interesting to see how they respond to how bad they were against Harlequins last time out. I'm actually really interested in that the way the fixtures have somehow managed to fall this week, there is the potential that if Ulster lost this game and every other result possible went against them, and this is purely because the next one, two, three, four, five, six teams below them do not face each other. Ulster could finish this weekend in 11th. <laughs> no, you're, I, you're I, so I know, glass half empty. I, know, I, know, I was going to say, where can they go through? The I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm going glass half empty. I'm just so interested. In, like this, this is how tight the league is. And I, I, you know, as much as I'm bemoaning the fact that I, I think Ulster are shouldn't be in this position. It is a great thing that the league is so tight and that it's exciting. Yeah, exactly. You know, like you. It's you exciting hear, if your balance sheet isn't dependent on well, Champions Cup income yeah, and fair, playoff fair income. Enough, but, you know, fr- from a from a neutrals perspective, uh, which technically we are as journalists, um, you know... To, We're just to, in Ulster, though. We're obviously Ulster fans to, listen to us. To have, to have such a tight table is a great thing for, you know, like anyone can beat anyone. Yeah. Every game sort of has this jeopardy on it. And, you know, Ulster could... They could go as high as... Second, yeah, top two they play could, each other. It's a real opportunity yeah. to close the gap on the leaders. You're looking at this all wrong, or they could be down eleventh. Like, but that's to me, that's great. Like, we're we're not, you know, second week of the season where you know one team wins the first week and then they lose the next week, and it's like, oh, we've we've gone from first place to last. Oh, what a what a tragedy! You know, we're now nine games into the season. We're right getting into the second half. Of the yeah, season, we now. we are getting to the point where teams theoretically should be kind of like putting themselves into a bracket of these are the teams pushing for home semi-finals, these are the teams pushing to be in the playoffs and these are the teams who are just scrapping to try and get back into it. I would say apart from the Sharks apart from the, you've got the Scarlets, Zebra, Dragons and Sharks at the bottom of the table have kind of drifted away one of those teams could maybe make a second half run and try and get into the playoffs but I would say they've all maybe got too much already to do but every other team in that table is still battling for anything from home semi-final to uh, just getting a playoff place which is class like that's exactly what you want from the league and if that is what ends up going to the end of the season you could be in a position where you're in the final weekend of the season and 
every game could have something riding on it, which is exactly what you want. Now, from an Ulster perspective and from our perspective as journalists who like to have copy written nice and early, <laughs> we would very much like to have something at least sorted so that we're not having to change everything that we write as we go. But you could find yourself in a position where this league could be decided by one try in the final game of the season. You could have playoff places, European places, home semi-final places, home quarter-final places, all decided on one kick or one try or one knock-on. Like, And that's that's class. That's good. That, I'm going to end it there, Adam, because that was really good promo for everyone to get excited for the match <laughs> on Sunday. Mr. ERC in the corner. It's well, ex- excuse me, you called me half empty and I felt like no, I had to change it's the good tune thing. there. It's a good natural end. But um, also terrible. No. <laughs> Uh, well the game is on at 3 o'clock in Swansea this Sunday you can catch up with all the analysis and match reports and live blog and all the rest of that good stuff on belfasttelegraph.co.uk or you can pick up the paper Belfast Telegraph or Sunday Life and until next week you I always going to say we'll see you then you'll hear us next week basically thanks for listening bye